I'd like to welcome you this morning as we continue uh, our study of the book of Galatians, rather as we pick it back up after our break uh, on Easter Sunday. We come back to Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 3, and I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be focusing our attention on verses 19 through 25 in uh, chapter 3 of Galatians. Now, a bit of a Uh, reminder of where we are and what's been happening in uh, this book. So if you remember the occasion, the reason why Paul felt like he needed to write this letter that we have for us here to the churches in the region of Galatia was because after founding these churches, going and proclaiming the gospel, gathering together believers and bodies, establishing these bodies, Paul then moved on in his missionary, uh, his missionary context. And then once these churches started growing, false teachers came in. And these false teachers began to preach a gospel that was contrary to the one that Paul had preached. In particular, they began preaching, they began teaching within these bodies that, yeah, Jesus is good and all, but if you really want Jesus to be your Messiah, you have to realize he was a Jewish Messiah. And therefore, you need to become Jewish by obeying the law of God, particularly the issue of circumcision. If you are truly going to be a member of the family of God and receive the Messiah, you need to have circumcision. But Paul says, no, to require obedience to the law is to undermine the gospel itself and to Take away from it all of its power. And therefore, we realize that we are justified. We come into a right standing with God. We are accepted into the family of God, not by our work, but rather through the promise that was first given to Abraham and was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's how you come into the family of God. That's how you are accepted. That's how you remain in the family of God, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the natural question is, if the promise of the gospel is how one comes into a proper relationship with God, what was the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law if not to provide a path towards acceptance and justification? Or as Paul rhetorically asks in verse 21 of our passage for this morning, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And we might expect Paul to say yes. The law is contrary to the promises of God, right? As we come through Galatians in chapter two, Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Later in chapter two, he says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And in chapter three, he says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. We might reasonably expect Paul to say the law is contrary to the gospel. Nevertheless, what we'll see in our text is that Paul doesn't reject the law's place within the economy of God's kingdom. Rather, he shows us that there is a purpose for the law. For the law serves as a needed contrast to the gospel. The law serves as a needed complement to the gospel. And the law serves as the needed custodian until the coming of the gospel. So hear now the word of the Lord 
Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 and following. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you now in this time. Lord, and we come to this passage of Scripture, Lord, that can be confusing. Lord, and so we pray that you would give to us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand. We need your Spirit that we might rightly understand your Word. And not just understand it, but that we might live by it. Lord, because we truly believe that Your Word is life. And so may we attend to Your Word with great focus and attention and with faith that Your Spirit is using it to draw us to Christ and to give us life and life everlasting. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So what is the place of the law in your life as a Christian. When you read the Ten Commandments or other aspects of God's law, how do you process these in light of the Gospel? The answer to this question is of great importance to those who would follow after Christ. For it is clear from Paul's teaching that the law is of no use when it comes to justification. We've followed that. Paul has been extremely clear on that. The law is not how we come into right relationship with God. The law actually serves to condemn and to rely on works of the law for salvation is contrary to the gospel itself. So then, should we just throw the law out? Has the law, the law no abiding purpose in the life of God's people? Throughout the history of the church, and in particular the Protestant church, this has been a very hotly debated topic. For there are some who would jettison the law of God as a dead relic of the past. This line of thinking is called antinomianism, which just means against the law or no law. Martin Luther had to deal with this question early on in the Reformation movement. A colleague of Luther's in Wittenberg named Johannes Agricola condemned the law as unnecessary as a carryover from the Old Testament. And he believed that to teach the law was too similar to the Roman Catholic stress on good works. He is even quoted as saying the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments belongs in the courthouse and not in the pulpit to the gallows with Moses. 
this debate continued throughout the history of the church and even into our day. Figures such as Tobias Crisp, John Eaton, John Cotton, and Anne Hutchinson all advocated for some form of antinomianism. And within the Reformed Church, the Reformed faith, even today, there are many, surprisingly many, who have come to prominence within the Reformed movement who espouse some form of antinomianism. They emphasize justification apart from works of the law Not only as central, it is central, but singular. That is the only thing that matters. That is to say they have taken one very important aspect of theology, which Paul clearly teaches in the first three chapters of Galatians, and they have made it the only aspect of theology. And this narrow reading of the Word of God leads every question to be answered by a singular concept, namely justification by faith alone. And this theological approach becomes increasingly untenable as we ask questions of how are we convicted of our sin? How do we grow in obedience? How do we grow in our sanctification? What do we do about Scripture's speech about rewards, both in this life and the life to come? Large swaths of Scripture have to be set aside if every question is answered by one concept. Every problem becomes a nail if you only have a hammer as a tool to answer these questions. And this simplistic approach has no ability to integrate God's law into God's grace. And in a reductionistic manner, the antinomian says that to preserve any place for the law within the Christian life is legalism and must be rejected in favor of grace to the gallows with Moses. Now, why does this matter? If you don't remember any of the names that I mentioned above, except for, of course, Luther's, it doesn't really matter. If you can't define antinomianism by this Wednesday, I don't really care. What I do care about is your relationship with Christ and the law of God. I do care that you are protected against the false and misleading systems of belief that would wholesale throw out the law of God. For we are not merely speaking of obscure theological debates. We're talking about how you follow Christ. We're talking about how you are drawn to Christ. How you mature in Christ. How you might lead others to Christ. We're talking about how we read the whole of God's Word and apply it to the whole of our lives. Paul, up to this point, has been fighting one side of the argument and a very important and central side of the argument that we might call the legalists, the Judaizers, have gone astray and they've set aside the truth of the gospel because they insist upon obedience to the law as a means to salvation. But now Paul wants to bring a proper balance to his argument. And he wants to show us how the law truly leads to the gospel. Now, the first thing I want us to see in our text for this morning is that the law was given as a proper contrast, as a proper contrast to the gospel. Look at verses 19 through 20. It says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And if it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. All right. 
So I'm going to point out three different ways it serves as a contrast, and then I'm going to come back to the first one for us and go in depth a little bit more. First, it's a contrast because it increases transgressions. It increases transgressions. We're going to come back to that again, but we can see at the very least, Paul sees the law as a revealer of darkness and sin in contrast to the gospel as a revelation of light and holiness. Okay, so there's a contrast here between transgression and holiness and the law and the gospel. Second, the law serves as a contrast as a shadow is a contrast to the substance. Okay, there in the verse, it talks about until the offspring should come. The offspring is Christ. We have already seen that earlier in chapter three. The offspring is Christ. Okay, but the promise of the offspring serves as the substance and the law is the shadow, the shadow of that substance. Now, a shadow doesn't define the substance. Okay. Like you can make a shadow and it might look different from what the substance is, right? You can do hand puppets and make your hand look like an alligator or something like that. It doesn't mean your hand's an alligator. You can misunderstand that. It's just an outline of what is to come, right? And the law gave us an outline of how and what Christ would be like. But when Christ came, we came to understand the true nature of that shadow. And the third thing we see is that the law serves as a contrast because the law was mediated. Okay, it was a revelation that came through mediators. First it says it came through angels to Moses and Moses to the people. But the promise was given directly to Abraham from God. And here we see that the promise of the gospel was given to us directly by His Son, Jesus Christ. Even as we read in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, right, through intermediaries. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So why the law? Because the law provides the proper contrast to the gospel promise. So that we might see the gospel's power and light. For we need the darkness to understand the light. If you have ever tried to go stargazing in the middle of the city, you will understand what I mean by this, right? If you're in the middle of a city that's filled with all sorts of artificial light and you want to go stargazing, you look up and you're going to see half a dozen stars, right? Because there's all this artificial light that's obscuring what's really there. But if you really want to see the stars, you go out into the desert where there aren't all these competing lights, and all of a sudden you see the brilliance and the glory of the light that is there. And what Paul is saying is that the law turns out the artificial lights so that you can truly see the light of Christ. Now how does it do this? How does this play into what Paul says when he claims that the law was given because of transgressions? Well, here Paul is claiming... That by giving the law, the Lord revealed the transgressions of His people. He revealed the transgressions of His people. Now, to transgress is to break a stated rule. And the reason that the law was given, Paul says, is to reveal to the people of God how powerful and pervasive and dark was their sin. And we need to be confronted with this truth as well. We need to see the darkness of our own sinful condition. 
We need to be confronted with the reality of how far we fall short of the glory of God. You see, we have all these artificial lights in our life that we believe that we are not as sinful as we truly are. And we can persuade ourselves. We can delude ourselves into believing that within our own selves there's true light. But the law was given to turn those lights out and to show the reality of our transgression. You see, we want to blame anything that goes wrong in our life in any way that we might sin, either on God or on other people. We're like Adam. Remember Adam after his first sin? What did he do? He blamed those who were around him, namely his wife. This woman, she caused me to sin. And if that's not enough, we blame God and the providence that he has brought into our life. This woman that you gave me, God, right? And so we need the law to reveal our transgressions because we will delude ourselves and we'll say, you know, yeah, I may have messed up. I may have not done what I was supposed to do, but you know, it's probably everybody else's fault that's in my life. And if it's not their fault, it's God's fault because God put me in this situation. But the law teaches us what has gone wrong in this world is not God. It is you. It is me. It is us. The law was given to increase transgression. The depth of sin is greater than we could have ever imagined. And our guilt and God's righteous punishment of our guilt is more than we can bear. The law puts the full weight of our sin upon our shoulders so that we feel the reality of our sin. We know the weight of it. And we realize that it is not everyone else. It's not God, but it is us who has the problem. When we look at the transgressions of the past, We might be tempted to say, how could God allow such evil to occur? What kind of monster is he? And this is the conclusion that many have come to. They've rejected God. They've rejected his word because they see the evils of history and they say, how could a God, how could a good God let that happen? But the law was given so that we might see that it is not God who is to blame, but it is us. Or we Look at the past and we want to blame others. However, the depths of our brokenness is revealed by the law. Now, we might deceive ourselves. And we see this throughout our culture. People deceiving themselves, believing that there is such great light within themselves, but the law needs to turn this light out. You think, you know, I I would have been the one who would have stood up for what is right in that situation. I would have been the one who fought slavery in Antebellum South. For there is light in me. I would have been the one who have rejected Jim Crow laws. I would have been the one who fought the Nazis. I would have been the one who protested against Stalin. I would not have bowed. I would have been the one who stood firm. Do you truly believe that our forefathers were so singularly and uniquely evil that the whole lot of them succumbed to sin? but that you are such a paradigm of virtue and courage and light that you would have stood for what is right and good and just? It is ordinary men and women who perform the atrocities of the past. It is ordinary men and women who performed aloud and turned a blind eye to genocide. And what the law does is it turns out the light so that you don't think that you are so holy that you would have stood fast. 
For if you were in their place, you would have done the same thing that they did. And the law is saying it's not them, it's not God, it's you. So that all of the weight and the burden and the guilt of the world's sin is placed upon your shoulders. Why was the law added? So that your trespass might increase. So that you might see how dark your sin is. And how much guilt and wrath you have stored up for yourself. Why was the law added? So that you would see that it was your sin that has caused not just the injustices in this world, but the ultimate injustice. That your sin led Jesus to the cross. That your guilt drove in the nails. That your transgressions pressed the crown of thorns down upon His head. That your brokenness broke our Savior. You need to feel the full weight of sin so that you will feel your need for Christ. You need to know the darkness so that you might know the true light. The law was added so that you would see your guilt And that you would run to Jesus as the only answer. That you would completely abandon yourself. And you would look to Christ alone as the one who could take the weight of sin off of you and bear it Himself. We need the law because it turns out the light so we can see the true light of Christ. That's the first reason. Because the law is a contrast to the gospel. The second thing I want you to see is that the law was added as a complement to the gospel. As a complement to the gospel. It comes alongside the gospel. Look at verse 21. Paul says there, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Right? It has this ministry of condemnation. Is, is this contrary to God's promises? Is it contrary to the gospel? And Paul emphatically says, certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, rather if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So then what is its purpose? Well, Paul says, again, if a law had been given, right, that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. The law is a righteous reflection of God's heart and desire for his people. He desires his people to live in a way that is holy. And the holiness that he desires is written for us in his word. Righteousness, as Paul says, would have been by the law. But why isn't it by the law? He says, if the law, if the law could give life. And this is why the law is a complement to the gospel, but is not the gospel itself. Because the law, though it points in the right direction, does not give us life. The law tells us how we are to live, but gives us no power to live it out. The gospel says, honor your father and your mother, but it does not give a child the desire, the heart, or the power to honor their father or their mother. The law tells us that we are not to murder. And yet it does not give us the power or the heart not to be murderous in our thoughts and our emotions and our actions. John Bunyan is credited with explaining this truth, this truth in these words. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. See, 
the law is a positive guide for how we are to live in this world. The law is a path to righteousness and holiness. But it doesn't give us any power to walk this path. You might imagine a man who needs rescue. And he's down in a pit. And you think, okay, to get him out of the pit, I'm going to throw a rope down for him so he can climb out. And you might imagine that's the law. Okay, the rope gives you the proper direction. You're to come out of the pit. And if you want to come out of the pit, you need to follow this road. But the problem is, if we follow the metaphor where Scripture tells us the man at the bottom of the pit is dead. Okay? He's not just needing help. He is spiritually dead. Paul says that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. The weight that we've already seen that the, that the law uh, enlightened us to is too much. And therefore Christ came. And Christ went down into the pit. Christ went down into the grave. And He rose from the dead. And all of those who have faith in Him and are joined to Him have died with Him and they've been raised with Him. We are out of the pit, not by the law, but by the Gospel. That's how we have life. That's how we have power. But the law still points in the right direction. The law still points us towards life. The way that we are to live. It complements the Gospel. It says that the Gospel should be taking you in this direction. Listen to Ezekiel's promise of the new covenant, the gospel. It says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Right? I will bring you back to life. I will give you spiritual life. How? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Or the promise of the new covenant given to Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. The law is a complement to the gospel. The Gospel alone saves. Christ alone is our salvation. The Spirit alone holds us fast in the grip of God's salvation. The law gives us no power towards this. However, the law is God's heart for our lives. For why would the Spirit write the law upon your heart if it was not God's desire for you to obey the law? We must utterly and completely reject the law as a means of justification, as a means of acceptance into the family of God. We must look to Christ alone, but the law does point us towards holiness. And it does give us the path to righteousness, even if it gives us no power to achieve it. You see, the law is a complement to the gospel because it gives us a guide to how we are to live as those who have been born again into the family of God. So why the law? Well, the law is a contrast to the gospel, right? It puts the weight of sin upon our shoulders and drives us to Christ as the only one who can lift that weight. Second, the law is a complement to the gospel. It gives to us a positive guide for how we are to live as those who have been born again and have had the law written upon our hearts. And third, the law as an acts as a custodian until the coming of the gospel. 
Look down at verses 23, or rather 22 through 25. Paul here uses two metaphors to explain the purpose of the law. It says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, the first metaphor that Paul uses here of the law is that the law is like a prison, right? When we've already talked about it in that contrast way, it puts this weight upon our shoulders. It, it imprisons us. It keeps us um, in, uh, in, uh, behind bars. We are a slave to sin, right? Paul says that we are a slave to sin. And yet, Paul's second point brings more clarity to what he means about a prison here in these verses. For he goes on to say that the law is not just a prison, right? He uses that that phrase, so then, he's making a connection. The law was our guardian, right? It imprisoned us. Why? To guard us. This is interesting, right? Why do you put somebody in prison? Well, there's many different reasons why you might put somebody in prison. You put them in prison to keep them from hurting other people, but also to keep them from committing more crimes. And the law serves as a prison to guard us from breaking more laws than we would have broken if the law had not been in place. It's a guardian. Now, the image that Paul uses here when he uses that word guardian is what we might call a custodian. A custodian of a child. In a uh, wealthy Greek family, they would employ a custodian to watch over the discipline of their school-aged children. Right? This guardian would walk them to school. He would ensure that they accomplished their tasks. They would get their homework done. He would keep them out of trouble. They were parentally empowered disciplinarians. If you think of it this way, it's like wealthy Greek families would employ life coach, personal trainer, prison guard to watch over their child. Might be nice. Images depicting these guardians always showed them with a stick in their hand. You would know that was the guardian because they would knock their charge back in line. The guardian was there to train a child in discipline and guard them until they are ready to live that discipline out in their own lives. And Paul says this is why the law was given. It was given as a prison but a prison to protect us from further crime. It was a guardian to train us and to keep us in line until the coming of the gospel. The law provides the proper guardrails to our lives and the proper line of discipline that we might grow. The gospel does not or is what sets us free. Not so that we can go out and break the law, but rather so that we can go forth and live lives of holiness. You see, you train your child because one day they're going to leave your home. And if you've trained them properly, they will wake themselves up in the morning to get to work. You were the law. For many years, you woke them up. You said, it's time to get ready for school. You disciplined them. 
because they had to learn how to live in this world. But now, once the child leaves the home, that child is free to wake himself up, not because he fears your discipline of him, but because he has learned to live out the principles of your discipline. He will hold the lessons you taught him and often remind himself of their wisdom, but he's no longer subject to their authority. The gospel sets us free from the law. We are no longer under the guardianship of the law as Christians. It allows us to live before God free from the fear of condemnation. But you misunderstand the gospel if you think that the gospel is there to free you to sin. It doesn't free you to sin. It frees you from sin. It gives you the power by the Spirit to live out what the law has disciplined us to live like. It frees you to live before God as a son and not as an inmate imprisoned for his own good. Why the law? The law is there to train, to discipline, to guard and to watch over us as we mature in our discipline as we mature in the living out of the principles of the gospel that have set us free. To the gallows with Moses, are Christians to throw out the commands of Scripture? Is there no place for the law of God within the life of a Christian? To toss aside the law is to misunderstand its proper place in the economy of God's kingdom. The law does not save. The law does not give us power or life. However, the law does lead us to the gospel. As a contrast, it drives us to Christ. As a complement, it reveals to us the holiness that God desires for our life. And as a guardian, it provides for us a positive guide for how we are to live. So do not throw out the law. But as you live by the Spirit, know that it is the law that has truly been written upon your heart. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you now in this time and we pray, O Lord. I pray if there is any who are here who are feeling the weight of the law upon their shoulders, that they might be driven to Christ and to Christ alone. I pray, O God, if there are any who are here who are wandering and are in need of wisdom, that they would run to Your law. Father, I pray for those who are here who do not know Christ. For our children who have not yet professed faith in Christ. Oh, would the law be the proper disciplinarian that would guard them from further hardship and sin and condemnation until they are truly led to the gospel of Jesus Christ and might throw off the constraints of the law and live free before you with the law written upon their hearts. Oh God, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would apply it to us. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.